Welcome back to the Warped and Wicked Podcast. I'm Crystal. I'm Jenny. And I'm Jennifer. This week we will be discussing a case from 2006. I actually had not heard about this case until we began talking about starting up this podcast and what cases our initial episodes would cover. So before we get started, I must say this case is absolutely gut-wrenching. Today we're covering the brutal murder of Cassie Jo Stoddard, which occurred at the hands of two of her classmates. Cassie was born on December 21, 1989, and lived in Pocatello, Idaho. She had two siblings, a younger brother and an older sister. Her brother said even though they were 18 months apart, that he still looked up to Cassie growing up. And several sources note that she spent quite a bit of her life staying with her grandparents. It's never really explained why, but honestly, that's neither here nor there. Things in life just happen. And in September 2006, it was Cassie's junior year at Pocatello High School. She was a straight-A student with aspirations of becoming a lawyer one day. She was creative, played soccer, and loved music. It was said Cassie was very well-liked and got along with everyone. One word that keeps coming up when people describe Cassie was how responsible she was. And due to how responsible she was, her aunt and her uncle asked her if she'd like to house sit and take care of their pets while they went away for a weekend. And it was the weekend of September 22nd, 2006. Cassie was saving money for a car, so this was an opportunity for her to make some extra cash. She asked her aunt and uncle if her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, could come over during the weekend to hang out and watch movies. And since Cassie was so trustworthy, they said yes. Cassie and Matt had been dating for a few months, and everything seemed to be going well. And we will go ahead and say up top that Matt had absolutely nothing to do with Cassie's murder. The two people who planned and executed the attack on Cassie were Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik. These two jackasses were only 16 years old when they committed this murder. Brian was adopted, had a stutter, and was bullied as a kid. He spent most of his childhood in Utah and later moved with his family to Pocatello. This, of course, is where he met Tori. Brian says in one of the documentaries that he didn't fit in anywhere and was afraid he would wind up being a nobody and a loser, which, after all this, he pretty much is. He also said that he couldn't find an identity that seemed to fit him. Which, that was something we all went through in our teenage years. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) I swear, I'm 35 years old and I'm still figuring out my identity. I think it's like a lifelong thing. Yeah, he just gave up too soon. Yeah. He eventually became fascinated with the Columbine High School Massacre and looked up as much information about it as he could. He even joined chat rooms and talked to other people that were obsessed with the shooting. The way Brian saw it, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were in the spotlight during the time they were being massive pieces of shit and killing innocent people. There's so many better ways to be in the spotlight. God, the Columbine shooting was one of those earth-shattering events. I mean, there had been school shootings before, but this seemed to be like on a whole new level. And maybe it was because it was the first major shooting that our generation had experienced and witnessed. I have a visceral reaction whenever I hear the word Columbine, and it's been over two decades since the shooting. Yeah, I do too. And I've listened to some podcast episodes about it in the last year, and they are very hard to listen to. The way I see it, Columbine is one of those collective trauma events in our country, like 9-11 was. Mm. And I listened to a last podcast on the Left series over Columbine, and Marcus said that when they told their friends what they were going to cover, their friends were visibly shocked that they were even going to talk about it. Like, that's how traumatic it still is. Yeah. Yeah, we were in, like, what, sixth grade when it happened? 
Like, things at our school were not as relaxed as they were before Columbine happened. And I mean, our younger listeners probably have no concept of simply being able to, you know, be in the hallways during class periods or, you know, every exterior door being unlocked. But for our school, in 1999, that's how it was. You know, we lost sort of our innocence when Columbine happened. And not to mention where we went to school... Elementary school, mm-hmm. we didn't have walls. We didn't even have yeah. walls. We or had doors. dividers. Yeah, people like when you tell people this concept of a school that have never been to a school like that, they are baffled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it that was a thing. The whole building. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. was no. There's nowhere to hide. We had yeah. coat racks that separated our classes. Yeah, like it yeah. was just dividers and like those big curtain things. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah. yeah. The '70s. <laughs> I mean, like that even separated our cafeteria from our gymnasium. Yeah, it was one of those big curtain things. Yeah, I remember one time when Brad and I first started dating, and we were just like talking about our lives. And I asked him one time, I said, "Did your elementary school have walls?" And he goes, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> of course it did. That is stupid. <laughs> uh, duh. Yeah, one of the things that I vividly remember uh, the day that Columbine happened was when I got home from school, and the news had video of students running terrified out of the school. I owned a trench coat and that's you know that they wore trench coats during that and at the time we weren't allowed to wear them anymore yep my parents because I was homeschooled briefly Mm -hmm. and then went back to school my parents wanted to re-homeschool me Mm -hmm. after Columbine yeah they were so terrified you know and I think a lot of parents talked about it yeah just pulling their kids out of school because if you should be able to send your kid anywhere it's school Mm -hmm. and you know, these things just make parents very uneasy. Well, yeah, I think now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> With it's, it's it becoming a more a frequent right thing. Now. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I just do want to clarify, the school that we are talking about does have walls now. Yeah, yeah. they do have walls. <laughs> we'll go ahead and, and it's very confusing to navigate it now. Uh, yeah, I get lost. <laughs> you just used to be able to look from one side to the other. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so we may need to do a Columbine series on this podcast one day. That's yeah, fair. that's fair. I think it would be very insightful. But back to Brian. He wound up meeting Tori during their sophomore year. Good Lord, just before Cassie's murder. Yeah, like just a year before Cassie's murder, this went into play. And we don't know a whole lot about Tori. Tori doesn't really open up as much as Brian does now, which Brian doesn't open up very often. But we did find some documentaries where they've interviewed him. But I guess Tori did grow up in the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints like Brian did, which I looked up like Utah and Idaho are right next to each other. Yeah. Well, like... One's right above it. I was like, well, maybe that's why, because Utah's has a lot of Mormons there. But anyways, I digress. Both boys loved horror movies and considered themselves to be movie buffs. And Tori actually wanted to make his own scary movie one day. And he really liked the movie Scream. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a horror movie where two friends take turns killing their classmates to gain notoriety. Yeah, and they wear, you know, it's the ghost face mask and the black clothing. Yeah. So you can't tell who they are, and it's super spooky. So one day when the boys skipped a school assembly, Tori asked Brian if he ever thought about killing people the way that Billy and Stu and Scream killed their victims. And Brian told him no, but he had thought about doing a mass shooting like Columbine. So together, they decided that they were going to kill multiple people they knew, but kill them individually rather than by a mass shooting. Mm. So some people call this the quote-unquote scream murder because of Tori and Brian's love of the scream movies and their desire to recreate the original. I mean, I love the scream franchise and the original is actually my favorite horror movie of all time. But these two were on a trajectory of harming other people no matter what movies they watched. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, after looking into this case, it seemed like there was quite a few similarities with Scream 4, which was made about five years after Cassie's murder. Like in the movie, there's these two horror movie buffs, Charlie and Robbie. And Kirby's house was on a street named Whispering Lane, and the house that Cassie was killed at was on Whispering Cliffs Drive. Wow. Seems a little odd to me. What a clinky dink. There's also a big scene in Scream 4 around the basement, and one of the killers, Charlie, one of the horror movie buffs, leaves the front door unlocked, leaving it open for anyone to get into Kirby's house. Dang. And, like, there's a part where, like, another guy who's not one of the killers, he just comes walking into the living room, and they're like, how did you get in? And he said, you left the front door unlocked. Which we'll find out later that the way that they got back into the house later was Brian had left the door unlocked. Wow. Yeah. So Brian said during an interview for the Lost for Life documentary that he had a crush on Cassie and he was devastated when she began dating Matt. So what I think is that Brian was most definitely a driving force for choosing Cassie as a victim. But I think Tori was more than excited to kill someone, quote unquote, like one on one rather than a mass shooting and really took the lead from there in the planning. And if you watch the videos, it seems like Tori is the dominant one of the two of them. But Brian is definitely the more talkative one in the videos, at least he is. It's, they pretty much fed into each other their desire for violence and the fame that they wanted to gain from the mm -hmm. violence. Like, they really thought they were going to be big shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly evident in the videos, which are all over YouTube. I think I actually saw a clip on TikTok. Yeah. It's crazy to think that one single statement of what the fuck are we doing may have prevented the entire night mm -hmm. that Cassie Joe was murdered. But instead, these two kept raising the stakes. So in August of 2006, Tori contacted an 18-year-old friend, Joe LaRusso. He asked him if he would buy some knives for him from a local pawn shop, saying he wanted to start a collection. Yeah. Joe, Tori, and Brian went to the pawn shop together where Tori picked out one knife and Brian picked out another three. And this is where the videotape comes in. Because these two shit stains not only planned the brutal killing of their classmate. And anticipation of killing even more of their classmates. Yeah. But they videotaped themselves discussing how they were going to pull off these killings. Which the tape just solidifies how fucking stupid and pretentious these two are. And just so you can get a sense for what these two sound like, trust me, it really puts it into perspective. We're going to play a small clip of them talking the night before the murder. And just to preface this, they are talking about how fictional characters like Santa Claus or vampires or werewolves were created to make kids act right. And Tori goes on to say that God and Jesus were also fictional characters created to make people in general behave correctly as well. Tori is the more high-pitched one, just for reference. It's so blatantly obvious it's not real. <laughs> people believe it because their parents teach them. And so it's so hard for them to let go of it because they've been taught their whole life. Yeah, I know. But fucking what the point I'm making is... We are also taught that things like killing people and wrong. other thing is wrong. The only thing that it's wrong about is because it's breaking the law, and the law is only wrong. And the law is after selection, dude. After selection, that's all I gotta say. There should be no law against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but yeah, hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're gonna want it more. Exactly. Goodbye, Cameron. Do you hear the level of intelligence the that we're working freaking with? freaking F, dude. Like. Yeah. 
Come on, my guy. Like, I think it's safe to say that it's, you know, exceptionally low. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious sakes, when my parents told me, hey, no, you can't stay up late. I mean, it didn't really make me want to stay up late. <laughs> like, and yeah. then killing people, like, you can't, don't kill anyone. Oh, better go do that. Exactly. So Jennifer and I are going to read some of the transcripts from the tape leading up to Cassie's murder, just so you can really get a feel for just how stupid these two are. I'll be Brian, and Jennifer's going to be Tori. This is the night before Cassie's murder, and the video is recorded at 8.08 p.m. Tori's driving, and Brian is filming. Plus, we're not going to get caught, Brian. If we're going for guns, we're just going to end it. We're going to grab the guns and get out of there and kill everybody and leave. We're going to make history. We're going to make history. For all you FBI agents watching this. And Brian laughs. Uh, you weren't quick enough. They literally thought FBI agents would be watching this tape. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure it's completely embarrassing for them that these clips are now out for the world to hear. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, it's got to be like, I feel secondhand embarrassment. Yes, I, that's what I for feel. For these tapes. It's like. Just by listening to them. You should wake up like, embarrassed. How dumb are you? Yeah, exactly. They sound as dumb as they are. So back to the transcript. You weren't quick enough, and you weren't smart enough, and we're going over to Jane Doe 1's house, because the names in these transcripts have been redacted, like people that they planned on killing but didn't kill. Oh. Okay. Which, by the way, these kids' names, they are redacted in some sources, but not in others. Like, yeah. there's some videos where you hear their actual names, and we're going to leave them out of this episode, because I think it's pretty inappropriate to name them. Sure, right. Um, but I'm sure these people know by now that they were mentioned in this tape, and I can't imagine how awful that makes them feel. Like, I mean, I, I know how I would feel. Stomach. Like, yeah, well, I mean, not to say in a bad way, but you kind of dodged a bullet there, mm -hmm. but it's like, this person was going to kill me. Mm -hmm. Wow. And clearly was capable of it. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's terrifying. Then Brian proceeds, we're going to snoop around there and try to see if she's home alone or not. And if she's home alone, splat, she's dead. Don't put your humor into this, Brian. Uh, I'm not putting my humor into it. Yep, people will die and memories will fade. Memories will fade. Hmm. I wonder what movie you got that from, Brian. Myself. Tori laughs. That was from myself. No wonder it was so lame. Okay, we're on our way and I'm gonna, I'll let you stay tuned. We're almost there. Then they went to Jane Doe 1's house and she wasn't home. Thank God. That's when they decided they would call Cassie and Matt to see what they were up to. And then the discussion that we're getting ready to say occurred about 10 minutes after that. Now we're going to go over to Cassie and Matt's house. If they're home alone, we're gonna... It's Cassie's house. Matt is there. Matt is there. Sorry. We're gonna knock on the door. We'll see who's there. We'll see if their parents are home or not. If they're home alone... We will leave our way, then we will come back in about 10 minutes. We'll sneak in through the door because chances are they're probably in Cassie's room. So we'll sneak in the front door, we'll make a noise outside. And Matt will come out to investigate. We'll kill him, and we'll scare the shit out of Cassie, okay? Sounds like fun. Well, stay tuned. Then 20 minutes later, we found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddart and her friends. We'll let you, and then Brian laughs. We'll find out if she has friends over, if she's going to be home alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. He laughs again. How perfect can you get? I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. This is fucking disgusting. Mm -hmm. Like, I am sitting yeah. here like, I cannot believe this freaking happened. And he's the one that tries to act all innocent after he's put away, right? Yep. 
Mm-hmm. What the hell? Yeah. Then Brian goes on. Hell yeah. So we're going to fucking kill her. This, like, makes me sick just I just, it. like, when the dude said horny, I'm like, you are so fucked in your head. Yep. Yeah. It, like, just saying this shit makes me sick. But we're going to keep going just so you can hear how all this, like, the monsters that these two are. If we have to know, you have to know. Yeah. You signed up for this, guys. <laughs> okay. So I'll start again. Hell yeah. So we're going to fucking kill her and her friends, and we're going to keep moving on. I heard some news about Jane Doe, too. She's going to be home alone from 6 to 7. So we might kill her and drive over to Cassie's thing and scare the shit out of them and kill them one by fucking one. Hell yeah. Why one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? Two by two and three by three, because we've got to keep it classy. Keep it classy. I mean, did they turn it to Ron fucking Burgundy and Ackerman? Oh, shit. I, like, don't know where they pulled that out of their ass. (laughs) They just pulled that out of their ass for some reason. So, yeah, it's going to be extra fun. You're evil, and then he laughs. Yes, I am. So are you, dude. Evil. Evil. No, evil is an expression of God. That was another test you failed. Evil is not an expression of God. Yes, it is. That's bullshit and you know it. Evil of origin is a follower of fucking Satan. There is no Satan. Is Satan real? Then shut up. Then how are we supposed to express ourselves? Good and bad. We're, we're bad. We are bad. That sounds so shitty. We're evil. That sounds even shittier. Hey, we're not, okay? Then we are sick psychopaths who get their pleasure off killing other people. That sounds good, baby. We're gonna go down in history. We're going to be like Scream, except real life terms. Sounds good, baby. We're going to be murderers. Like, let's see, Ted Bundy, like the Hillside Strangler. And, you know, just as a side note, there were two Hillside Stranglers. It's kind of creepy. He keeps calling him baby. I can't mm-hmm. move past yeah, that. So Tori goes on, no. The Zodiac Killer. Those people were more amateurs compared to what we're going to be. We're going to be more higher sources of Ed Gluh. Gene. Gene. Okay, sidebar here, guys. Yes, these idiots really said Ed Jean rather than Ed Gein. Not to mention they're naming off really prominent killers. They were not the serial killer buffs that some media sources try to make them out to be. And Ed Gein is not notorious for the amount of victims he killed. He has two confirmed victims. He's notorious for exhuming corpses from cemeteries and making keepsakes out of their skin and bones. He's the one that made lampshades out of human skin and bowls made out of human skulls. And I can promise you all, if we do have episodes covering Ed Gein on this podcast, it won't be for a very, very long time. Like, I've had to turn off podcast episodes about him. Wow. Really? Disgusting. Yes. I didn't know anything about him, to be yeah. really honest. And neither did Tori and Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Oh. But that, you don't try to sound Jean. like That guy Gene. <laughs> so back to Brian and Tori. Brian laughs. Well, let's say we're that sick and that twisted. Oh, you know what Ed Gene's words were? What? He saw a girl walking down the street, right? Yeah. Two questions came to his head. Hmm, I could take her out and have a nice time with her. And then kill her? Skin her alive? Charm the pants off her. Or I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. And then he laughs. And then Brian laughs. Holy shit. It's creepy, huh? Kick ass. Murder is power. Murder is freedom. Goodbye. Okay, first of all, murder's full. I'm so stressed. I just need everybody to take a breath. We're going to take a deep breath. Inle- intelligence and exhale no stupidity. stupidity. <laughs> so first of all, murder is not already. power or freedom because they're in prison for the rest of their lives because of this. And the quote is stated wrong, and it was from Edmund Kemper, not Ed Gein. Which I'm sure this fucker got the quote from the movie American Psycho because they attribute the quote to Ed Gein too. The quote is, When I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. 
One part of me wants to take her out, talk to her, be real nice and sweet and treat her right. And the other part of me wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Good lord. That's charming. So then the video cuts to the next morning, Friday, September 22nd at 8.28 a.m. In the hallways of Pocatello High School, Brian is doing the recording, of course, and he approaches Cassie at her locker. Brian says, hey, look, it's Cassie. Hello, Cassie. She then says, hello. Brian laughs and says, I'm getting you on tape, okay? Say hi, please. Cassie then smiles and says hi as she's getting books out of her locker. And real quick, this video is haunting. By the end of that night, Brian would make sure Cassie didn't live to see another day. The video restarts at 12.10 p.m. that day. It actually looks like Tori and Brian are in some sort of study hall or in the library, perhaps. They're crouched down at a table to get in the frame and are being super secretive and quiet. Now, Jenny and Jennifer will read from the transcripts of the video again. Yeah, if you're watching this, we're probably deceased. Hopefully this will go smoothly and we can get our first kill done and then keep going. For you future serial killers watching this tape, good luck with that. Good luck. Hopefully you don't have like eight or nine failures like we have. Yeah, we've probably tried maybe ten times, but they've never been home alone, so... Or when they have, their parents show up. As long as you're patient, you know. And we were patient, and now we're getting paid off because our victim's home alone. So we got our our plan all worked out now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick with the plan, and she's perfect, so she's going to die. And then he laughs. And this, like, videotape's fucking disgusting. I wonder if, But it's just so, like... I mean, and I know they probably have, like, her parents, man. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, ugh. Yeah. During the clip, Tori is writing something down in a notebook, which he said at one point was their quote-unquote death list. The cops believe that a partially burned note that was later found may have been this note, and in it says that they planned to kill Matt that night if necessary. After school let out that day, Cassie's mom, Anna, drove her and Matt to Cassie's aunt's and uncle's house, which was located on the street named Whispering Cliffs Drive. And Anna said she spoke with Cassie again on the phone that night around 9.30 p.m. Cassie assured her mom that everything was all right and that she would talk to her in the morning. It was the last time Anna would ever speak to her daughter again. Makes me sick. Yeah. And just a side note, around 5.30 p.m. that day, there's a video clip of Brian playing the drums. And when he goes to pick up the camera after he's done, the camera pans out into his bedroom where the opening scenes from Scream were playing. Wow. Yeah. Because Matt, Cassie, they spent the evening, they were just like hanging out, watching TV, eating their food. My favorite things to do on a Friday night. Yeah, just, you know, little boyfriend, girlfriend time, just being kids. And around 8.20 p.m., Tori and Brian showed up at the house. And depending on the source, the boys either happened to hear about Cassie house-sitting or they showed up uninvited. But per the court transcripts, Matt and Cassie invited Tori over to the house, and Tori brought Brian. Cassie took the boys on a tour of the house, and all four teenagers watched part of uh, the movie Kill Bill Volume 2 together. At one point, Brian said that he had to go to the bathroom, and while he was out of the living room, he unlocked the basement door, and that was the way that he and Tori would later use to get back into the house. And around 9.30, Tori and Brian left, saying they were bored and wanted to go watch a movie at the movie theater. And then... We go back to the videotape. This is at 9.53 p.m. We're here in his car. The time is 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. 
Um, unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends, and they are right in that house just down the street. We just talked to them. We were there for an hour, but... We checked out the whole house. We know there's lots of doors. There, There's lots of places to hide. Um, I unlocked the back doors. It's all unlocked. Now we just got to wait, and, um, yep, we're... We're really nervous right now, but you know, we're ready. We're listening to the greatest rock band ever. We've waited for this for a long time. Pink Floyd before we commit the ultimate crime of murder. So now they're just going to throw in ruining fucking Pink Floyd too? Mm-hmm. I know. Could you imagine if, you know, if you were Pink they're Floyd? Like, be right. like, we're like the Chilla's rock band. Yeah. yeah. I'd be like, bro, no. Don't mention You're not dragging name. me into this right. shit. <laughs> I have nothing to do with this. We've waited for this for a long time. A long time. Well, stay tuned. Now, I just want to say, like, when we were discussing this case earlier and we were talking about the way he says, unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends. Like, it's not like it's a chore that your parents are making you Mm -mm. do. It's not not like you have to fucking go to work after getting, like, two hours of sleep. Like, you chose to do this. It's not like somebody gave you this task and said, here... You need to, like, you did this. Yeah. Right. It's not even, like, one of those creepy people that are saying, like, I'm killing people because God told me to. Right. You know. They literally You You picked this. this. All right. About 15 minutes after Tori and Brian left Cassie's aunt and uncle's house, they parked Tori's car down the street and changed into dark clothing and put gloves and masks on. Brian was armed with a dagger-style knife, while Tori was armed with a hunting-style knife. Now, before we get into it, we decided that we'll share a picture of the masks on our Facebook and Instagram pages so you you know what we're talking about. But I'll go ahead and tell you here that they were white masks with red paint coming out of the eyes running down the front. They were absolutely terrifying to look at. And the two boys snuck back in through the basement and started making loud noises. Either Matt and Cassie didn't hear this or they weren't going downstairs to investigate Either way, I don't blame them because this is scary as fuck. Tori and Brian then opened the fuse box and started turning the lights on and off to the house. This, of course, was done in the hope that Matt and Cassie would come down to the basement to mess with the fuse box, and then the boys would kill them both. The lights flickering on and off set Cassie into a panic, and Matt was trying to calm her down. There is no storm to knock out the power, and all the neighbor's lights were still on. Even one of the dogs was barking at the door leading to the basement in an attempt to alert Matt and Cassie to the two assholes down the stairs. Matt called his mother to tell her what was going on and that Cassie was really scared. He asked his mother if he could stay overnight with Cassie and, since she's the mom of a teenage boy, she told him no, that she would be there shortly to pick him up. By the time Matt's mom arrived to the house, several of the lights had come back on. Matt tried to persuade his mother to let him stay the night. She declined again. However, she did ask Cassie if she would like to stay at their house because at least there would be adult supervision there. She told Cassie that she could stay the night at their house and she would bring her back to her aunt and uncle's house first thing in the morning. Cassie declined, saying she promised her aunt and uncle that she would look after the house and the pets. She didn't want to go against her word. I think that that's like a very fair... Yeah, oh, for thing sure. that she offered. Yeah. And I'm glad that it was offered and I wish, you know, Cassie would have accepted. Yeah. But I get, you know, she was pet sitting as well, so I mm-hmm. get why she didn't go. Yeah. Yeah. Cassie and Matt said their goodbyes around 10.30 p.m. Now, 
At this point, Matt called Tori to tell him that he won't be able to hang out that night because at one point, Matt and Tori planned to maybe hang out later that night after Cassie's. But Matt's mom wasn't going to let him go back out. And I don't blame her. Like, this sounds like a move I would make. Yeah. Like, some creepy shit's yeah. happened. It's it's late for me. Yeah. yeah. You're doing and too you're much. you're not going back out. Matt would later say when he called Tori that he spoke to Matt in a whisper. Matt just assumed Tori was at the movies. Yeah, he didn't know Tori was in the basement, lying in wait, just minutes away from killing his girlfriend. Ugh, I have a pit in my stomach just thinking oh, about yeah. it, like... Can you imagine, like, being him after the fact, having the realization, like, how everything went down? Yeah. Yeah. So after Matt left, Cassie went back into the house, and soon after, the lights went out again. Cassie, no doubt, absolutely petrified, did not go down to the basement. So Brian and Tori stomped up the stairs into the living room. I hate everything about this. And when Brian got to the top of the stairs, he slammed a door to scare her even more. Cassie was stabbed 30 times. 12 of which were considered potentially fatal. Most of these fatal wounds were went into the right ventricle of her heart. Oh my gosh. And a second examination of Cassie's body concluded that two different knives had been used. One knife with a serrated blade had inflicted 11 of the 12 potentially fatal wounds. A second single-bladed and non-serrated knife inflicted one potentially fatal wound and the other non-fatal wounds. So either way you go, both boys killed her. Yes. You can't argue that fact at all. But I think you can make an assumption that one of them was definitely more Mm -hmm. invested in doing this. Yes. And it's later found through evidence that underneath Cassie's fingernails, it was Brian's DNA. Wow. So Brian, and they, they couldn't connect Tori to the DNA found under her fingernails, There's a set of male DNA that doesn't make a hit to anybody. So it could have just been that it was Tori's and it just wasn't enough to link up. Mm. But that would tell me at least the way I would see it is that Brian was closer to her. And it was a more... Yeah, he was more the aggressor. Yeah. And the boys fled after, you know, after stabbing her 30 times. And they left her to bleed out onto the floor. Okay. Deep breath, guys. We're going to play one more video clip of these two worthless, horrendous people, just so you can hear what really sealed the deal for them when they went to trial. That is absolutely disgusting. It's disturbing. I think it's very interesting to notice the difference between Brian pretty much having word vomit and Tori taking control of the situation. Like, shut the fuck up. We got to get our act straight. And if you notice in this video clip, Brian says he killed Cassie. Right. I caught Tori that. never once admitted to it. Mm. Yeah. So it seems to me that like Tori more or less in a sense, like, kept his wits about him and was probably like, if we get caught and this video comes out, right. I'm not going to be on tape saying that I killed her. Yeah, I mean, you know was, what I mean? It was yeah. the first thing out of his mouth. Yeah. Mm. So following Cassie's murder, Brian and Tori went back to Tori's house. They somehow got movie tickets, but the times in the movie didn't match with their alibi that they were going to give. Makes total fucking sense. 
The boys gathered up all the evidence, their clothes, the masks, the knives, the tape, etc., etc. Jennifer's going to give a really long list later of what was found. Yeah. They took everything to Black Rock Canyon and tried to set the evidence on fire. And they must have tried to use, like, gasoline or rubbing alcohol. My guess is rubbing alcohol. Anyway, they wound up burying the evidence after they tried to burn it. Then they went back to Tori's house and watched a movie. I have no fucking words. I don't know how it happens in your brain to be able and just go sit down and watch a movie after brutally murdering someone. Yeah. I don't know what kind of disconnect you have to have to be able to do that. So over the weekend, because Cassie wasn't found right away, Matt tried to contact her. And when she didn't answer, he had no way to get to her aunt and uncle's house because he didn't have a car of his own. Matt actually stayed the night with Tori that Saturday, September 23rd. Holy crap. Yeah, which is like fucking bone chilling. I couldn't imagine to say like, I just went and stayed with the person that killed my girlfriend and I can imagine Tori being just like, Chill cool, as fuck. Cool as a cucumber. Let's watch a movie. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, five minutes after you've killed someone, you're, you're a calm. psychopath. He even asked Tori if he could drive him out to Cassie to check on her. But Tori said he didn't have enough gas money to get out there. So Tori's man enough to take Cassie's life, but he's not man enough to see the aftermath of someone finding her body. Exactly. He's Let's a little see. bitch. Mm-hmm. And on Sunday, September 24th, Cassie's aunt, uncle, and 13-year-old cousin arrived home from their weekend away. And to make this even more heartbreaking, Cassie's cousin was the one to find her. Wow. That's sad. So after she was found, Cassie's aunt frantically called 911, begging for an ambulance and saying, there's a dead girl on my floor, she's missing a finger. This 911 call breaks my heart because you can hear someone wailing in the background. And I just assume it's Cassie's cousin. Shortly after the police arrived... Cassie's mother showed up to the house to pick Cassie up to take her home because she had no clue what was going oh on yet. Oh, my. I got literal cold chills. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't imagine, you know, because I have a daughter. Oh, my God. I still have cold chills. That's, I couldn't fathom When that. she said there's a dead girl, like, did she not know it was? That's, she might I was not. Have, I mean, it was two days later and she was covered oh, in blood shit. so she might not have even recognized she her. might have expected her to be like okay well they're on their way home i can go home now you know especially if her mom was coming to pick her up that it might have just the been aunt some... and mom or uncle and mom probably talked to be like yeah I'm, I'm heading to go get her right now and they didn't yeah maybe i mean or well, she then... was just hoping, that well, hoping I, that it was, I, think I mean i could see that too thinking. like hoping that i mean i hate that there's a dead body right. on my floor but anyways I but hope i'm praying it's not, it's not my niece right absolutely in an interview that her mom later did she said she couldn't believe it when she was told that cassie had been murdered like even after she was told she was still expecting to see cassie walk out of the house like there must have been a mistake you know like Mm -hmm. they're mistaken like that's not cassie that's somebody else yeah which i've had that reaction to a couple people that were close to me like it's an automatic reaction like there's been a mistake like are we sure this is who you're saying it is like it's not my family member not my friend. No way. Right. Well, I mean, and we've experienced a lot of loss this year anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with my brother, mm-hmm. I kept waiting for him to come to his own celebration of life. Yeah. You know, like, ha ha, guys, just kidding. Right. Because it doesn't feel real. No. No. So. But as far as the police knew, sorry, guys. No, you're fine. <laughs> uh, Matt Beckham was the last person to see Cassie alive, which is her boyfriend. So they immediately want to talk to him, obviously. 
But when the detectives broke the news to Matt, he didn't show much emotion. And I mean, he could have been in shock. And I think the detectives know that. And also, they were having a hard time imagining that a teenage boy could do such a thing. So they decided to give Matt a polygraph test. Which, as you will hear throughout several episodes of this podcast, polygraph tests don't really prove things one way or the other. The results usually aren't even admissible in court. But they can be a useful tool to get people to crack, which we will see here soon. And when Matt took his, he passed it with flying colors. During this time, Matt happened to mention to the detectives that Tori and Brian were also at Cassie's aunt and uncle's house on the evening of the 22nd. Thank God. Could you imagine if he hadn't thought to say anything about that? Yeah. I could honestly say that, like, if they hadn't gotten caught, they would have done it again. Oh, Oh, for sure. The next day. Yeah. You know, they had all weekend. They had the list. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm glad he did say that because, you know, I mean, he's also a teenage boy. You know, you're not processing, this was a lot. You know, your girlfriend has been killed. You're a suspect. Now you're in a police station getting a polygraph. You're so young, you don't even have your own car. Right. Like, to, I couldn't imagine you're a baby. feeling that. Yeah. Could you met one of your boys? <laughs> like I couldn't. And as I was doing this, I was like, I couldn't imagine one of my kids having to go through something like right. this. Mm-hmm. So detectives get in touch with Tori and Brian. Both of them said that they left Cassie's house around 9.30 to go to the movie theater and watched the movie Pulse. I don't even know what that is. I had to look it up. It's got a movie with Kristen Bell in it, which is weird because she's in Scream 4. There's a couple other like weird famous people in it, but it was a scary movie apparently. Um, But when they were pressed for details like what was the movie about... Who was in the movie? Simple questions. Ones you would know probably without even watching it if you looked at the poster. Especially if you're a movie buff. Like they claim to be. Mm -hmm. Neither one of them could provide any information. So the detectives went to the movie theater and spoke to an employee who'd been working at the ticket booth that night. They asked her if Tori and Brian bought tickets that night. The employee said no, and she said she would have known if they had because she knew them from school. Mm. So this leads the detectives back to Tori and Brian. By this point, Tori and his parents are not answering any calls from police. But Brian was. He's chatty Kathy. When the detectives told Brian they knew that he was lying, his story changed. He said that he and Tori were not at the movies, but they were going through cars. Like rifling through them, probably yeah. to steal stuff. Uh, he said they lied about the movies because they didn't want to get in trouble. But the police never received any reports of burglarized cars, so they figured that that was probably a lie too. Brian was asked to take a polygraph, and on the morning of September 27th, before Brian took his scheduled polygraph test, he began to cry and said that he needed to speak with the detectives. Mm. So, with his parents in the room, Brian, in between sobs, said... Of course. Yeah, now we're going to cry about it. You weren't sad in all your recordings. Mm-hmm. He said that he and Tori did return to Cassie's aunt and uncle's house. He admitted that they turned the power off. They were trying to scare her. You see, it was all supposed to just be a prank. Yeah, just supposed uh, to be a prank. Yeah, I mean, tapes will also suggest that was a lie. Mm-hmm. But he was shocked and horrified when Tori began stabbing Cassie. Brian also said that when he spoke to Tori earlier in the day, he told Brian that if he told the cops anything, he would kill Brian too. I'm sure. Well, yeah. I mean, that's possible, but I think that's an excuse. I think, yeah, that was a total lie. (laughs) So 
Then he said that he could take the detectives to the evidence. The same evidence they tried to burn and then buried? That, yeah, that would be the evidence. Okay. You're wanting this to make sense, but it's not going to. <laughs> I really think that's a new catchphrase so for this entire podcast. Yeah, you want it to make sense, but it's not going to. It's gonna. not going to happen. <laughs> Stop trying to make sense happen. There we go. That's another one. <laughs> so Brian took the detectives to the Black Rock Canyon, which is, I think, also abbreviated just BRC. And this is a list of what was found. So bear with me. Stick matches, a pair of black boots, a pair of blue rubber gloves, a pair of Athletic Works brand fingerless gloves, a melted brown hydrogen peroxide bottle. That must have been what they were trying to use as I get it. They're fucking... They're so dumb. So dumb. A multicolored mask, a large dagger type knife with a sheath, a silver and black handled knife with a signature of Sloan written on the inside, a small dagger type knife with a sheath, a black-handled serrated folding knife. Later DNA testing revealed that Cassie's blood was present on this knife. A partly burned piece of paper with writing and pencil. That was their death list and their murder plan. Like they literally wrote... Write that down. We didn't include like the wording on the paper because it's jumbled because part of it's burnt. But it literally says like murder... Cassie and Matt. Wow. So, like, there's no way that Matt was involved in this. Like, they were planning on killing right. him, too, if they needed to. And honestly, like, what do you think if he didn't call his mom? Would he... I mean, they were... Yeah, they within, were getting to that they point were of, like... right there. Oh, yeah. yeah. After their murder list, uh, there was a red and white mask. DNA testing later revealed that a partial DNA profile of Tori was on the mask. A single black glove later was tested for DNA and it revealed a partial DNA profile from an unknown man. Which I think is just like it couldn't connect with either one of them. Like mm-hmm. I don't think there was it wasn't a enough. male present. No, I don't. I'm sure that. some people might, but I don't think that was the case. No. A pair of partially burned black Puma brand gloves. DNA testing later revealed that Cassie's blood had soaked into these gloves. A blue plastic garbage bag, a partially burned black long sleeve Hagar brand dress shirt, Calvin Klein black dress shirt. Later DNA testing revealed that Cassie's blood was present on the shirt cuff. A white and gray sock, a small piece of black cord, and a Sony videotape that was later repaired and straightened in order to make this playable. Yeah, because at first when they got the tape, they weren't sure that they were even going to be able to play it, which thank God somebody in the tech room was able to (laughs) make it happen. the other crystals of the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you know, when the police got the tape, they weren't very sure like what was on it. And some of them were petrified that it would be an actual film of Cassie's murder. Mm. And, um, Of course it wasn't, but they were still horrified to see it was in fact a video of the planning and then the aftermath of Cassie's murder. So Brian and Tori obviously were both arrested. And the next day Brian was interviewed again. Brian again said that Tori was the only person who stabbed Cassie. But one of the officers asked Brian like if he stabbed Cassie at all to keep Tori from turning on him. Brian then nodded and said he stabbed Cassie four times in the leg in the chest. So before he started stabbing Cassie, he said Brian told him, you need to stab her. You need to stab her. And then after Brian stabbed Cassie in the leg, Tori said, it's not going to work. She has to die. Can you fucking imagine? Like, mm. the pain of being stabbed. Right. You don't know. Like, I mean, I'm sure by that point she may have realized who was killing her because Tori's voice is pretty fucking unique. Yeah. Um, yeah and they were friends. And just hearing that, like, she has to die. Like, that's one of the last things you fucking hear is she has to die. 
Like it's just what goes so through fucking your mind cold. Like I can't. And just like Brian blamed Tori for everything, Tori blamed Brian for everything. Classic. And on April seventeenth, two thousand seven, Brian was found guilty of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit first degree murder. And on June eighth, two thousand seven, Tori was found guilty of the same charges. On August twenty first, two thousand seven, each boy received a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for first-degree murder. They also received 30 years to life for being convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. So, like, if there's even a way that, like, their first-degree murder charges wouldn't keep them in there for life, they have that then this would. extra yeah, 30 years like tacked con- on there. Contingency yeah. plan. Yeah. yeah. So both Brian and Tori were serving their time at Idaho State Correctional Institution in Ada County, Idaho. Brian said in the interview with Keith Morrison this year that he sees Tori all the time in passing, but they never talk to each other. Yeah, everyone should really go watch the Lost for Life documentary. This documentary was filmed like five years after the murder, and Brian does seem to take blame for what he did, and he does seem remorseful. I don't believe a murderer any further than I can throw them, though. But at least, like, admits that he did it. But Tori takes no responsibility at all. And his parents blame it all on Brian. It's it's so crazy to watch them. Like, he's trying to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Still, like, shifting blame to Brian, of course. But then his parents, like, talk over him. And they're like, but Brian did it. And Brian's the crazy one. And Brian's the one that planned all this out. Like, basically, like, you were just there. And I'm like, no, no. you're not helping at all. Somehow you're making this worse. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I also want it to be known that during the investigation of Tori... Cops seized his computer and found evidence of child pornography and animal cruelty on it. So fuck that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. He was definitely. He's like. It's so creepy to think that a sixteen-year-old boy has like all that just brewing, like thinking of murder. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we're talking about this, I'm starting to think that Tori was actually very serious about everything. They both were, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I feel like more so than Brian. Because mm-hmm. in the moment, I. Th- I almost have, like, a little thing that Brian probably would have said no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he was also scared in the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know, though. Yeah, and, like, you can tell in the videotapes, like, obviously we weren't there, so we don't know for sure, but that's the way I feel, too. Like, in the videotapes, it really does seem like Tori is the dominant one over yeah. Brian. Well, so We've all watched enough crime shows. When it's two people, there is always one that is, like... More dominant. More mm-hmm. dominant, and then the one that just kind of follows along and does more submissive yeah and then like we talked about when they were talking about her stabbing you know and he stabbed her significantly more times he was the one that really wanted to do this like i said even though brian's dna was underneath her fingernails he could have just been in like closer proximity at one point Mm -hmm. and tori's might be underneath her nails too they just didn't it just didn't match up but i really feel like and this is pure speculation of course Because we're never going to get the truth out of either one of them, I feel like. You get to hear Brian's side because Brian's fucking talking and Tori's not. That also makes me kind of wonder. But I really do feel like Tori took over. It was Brian's idea to, like, mention her to add her to the list. And then Tori just, like... Because there's a part in the video, too, I didn't think to mention it. And it's not in the transcripts, which is strange. And it's probably because they were whispering back and forth to each other. So you really couldn't transcribe it. But when they're in the school, Brian's like, yeah, we'll probably, like, get away with killing, like, eight people. And Tori's basically, like, upset that it's only, only eight, eight people. people. Wow. And then Brian's like, well, if we're really good at it, maybe 20. And, like, I'm not shitting you. Like, it's fucking terrifying 
the smile that comes on Tori's face when Brian's like, yeah, like maybe if we're really good at it, maybe we'll get to 20. And his fucking smile is creepy. That's fucked There's up. some shit in that kid. Like some demonic. Yeah, he was very much wanting, this is what he wanted. Mm. Yeah. So in 2010, Cassie's family filed a civil suit against the Idaho School District, saying that the school authorities were negligent and should have known that Brian and Tori posed a threat. However, both the civil court and the Idaho Supreme Court dismissed the case. Unsurprisingly, Tori and Brian filed appeals. Tori filed one in 2010 and Brian filed one in 2011. Brian wanted to have his conviction vacated or to be given a limited life sentence that would allow him to be released on parole if approved after 30 years. The first appeal for each of them was denied. The high court did vacate Brian's conviction on conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, stating jurors were given erroneous instructions for the charge, but they did affirm his conviction for the first-degree murder with his life sentence without parole. Which, I will say, when we get into the Supreme Court decision about the juvenile offenders taking off that tacked-on sentence, if he does get it reversed to where he doesn't have the automatic sentence of life without parole, like, that could ensure him, like, getting out sooner than he would. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Because that tacked-on sentence is gone now, Mm -hmm. there would be a chance that he could get out sooner. Yeah. Ugh, can you imagine? I can't. No. In 2015, Tori had a hearing for post-conviction relief. He said that testimony from character witnesses could have changed the outcome of sentencing, but his lawyer chose not to bring these witnesses into the stand. I mean, how the hell would their testimony would have changed anything? I just... No, exactly. And so his request was denied. Then Tori appealed that decision and it was upheld. Following that decision, Tory filed a federal writ of habeas corpus in 2018, in which he argued that the court denied his first appeal based on a theory that was not presented to the jury. Tory also argued that he should be entitled to a new sentencing hearing in the light of the Miller and Montgomery decisions. We'll get to this in just a second. Federal Magistrate Judge Candy W. Dale presided over Tory's writ, and on November 25, 2019, she denied the writ. Tory appealed Judge Dale's decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in February of 2022, and on March 24th of 2022, they upheld the sentence. Wow. So it's just like appeal after appeal after and that's appeal. That He's not getting anywhere. Well, it's so crazy that it's still going on. That was 2006. Yeah, it's, it's a and long this, this happened this year. Time. Yeah. So as far as juvenile offenders and mandatory life sentences without the possibility of parole go, things have changed in the last decade. In 2012, in the case of Miller versus Alabama, the United States Supreme Court ruled that mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juvenile offenders, even in cases of murder, ruling that the youth of the convict had to be considered. And in 2016, the Supreme Court ruled in the case Montgomery versus Louisiana that this doctrine has to be applied to cases retroactively and directed a review of all such cases. So between these two rulings, this could affect up to 1,500 cases nationwide. Given juveniles' brain immaturity, the Supreme Court ruled that there has to be an opportunity to consider mitigating factors with possible relief for persons who had reformed. So I'm just going to go ahead and on a side note, like, it's a fact. And I've told my kids this more times than I can count, probably 100 times. When you're a teenager, like, the frontal lobe of your brain, which is what you use for, like, reasoning is not fully developed. And it's not fully developed till you're like 25. 
but like that's how you make irrational decisions and you don't think about the future and stuff like that. I can see it for certain things. I can see it for like you're robbing a store, you're the getaway driver, a person right. gets killed, and you're sentenced to life. And that was parole. an accident. Yeah. You know, shit like this, not where intentional. You're planning this, there's plenty of time for you to say, what the fuck are we doing? We need to stop. Brian and Tori's situation, I feel, is different. But yeah. I can see why this got ruled the way that it did. Right. Of course, Brian and Tori are among the cases that will need to be reviewed. And I did note when I was doing this research that the states of Pennsylvania, Louisiana, and Michigan ruled that Miller versus Alabama, that decision was not retroactive. So they are applying where they can't automatically do life without the possibility of parole, but they're not going back to cases from before 2012. Until their cases get reviewed one day, Brian and Tori are serving out their life sentences in a state prison in Idaho. And it's obviously not a guarantee that even when their cases are reviewed that they will get out of prison. I personally don't think that they will. I don't think I think if anything, out of the two of them, Brian may have a fighting chance more than Tori would. Right. Because Brian's showing some sort of remorse and Tori's not. I hope neither one of them gets out. Right. I will say that much. Things were very difficult for Cassie's family, as you can only imagine. Her family was absolutely devastated. Cassie's uncle turned to alcohol to cope. Her aunt fell into a depression and lost her job. Cassie's cousin attempted suicide due to the trauma of finding Cassie's body in her home. Her aunt and uncle had a very difficult time selling their house due to everything, but they were able to sell it after several years. On a positive note, we did find that for quite a few years, her family would put on an annual event called Pumpkins for Cassie. People could make donations to the Pocatello Animal Shelter and the Idaho Food Bank, and in return, they would receive a pumpkin. Sadly, Cassie's mother, Anna, passed away earlier this year due to cancer at the age of 57. Cassie is still survived by her grandparents, siblings, stepfather, and nieces, and I have no doubt the next generation of her family will hear about their smart, beautiful, and kind aunt who is destined for great things. And surely they will draw inspiration from her to achieve great things in their own lives. And all I have to say at the end of this is rest in peace, Cassie. It's absolutely devastating that her life was cut so short. Yeah. Yes, and her story deserves to be told. Because she was destined to do so many awesome things with her life. And it was all taken away from her. By two bumbling idiots. She seemed like she was a very sweet girl and... I do also kind of have to point out how close in age we all were to her. Mm -hmm. When it happened? Yeah. When it happened. You know, she passed away in 2006, and we graduated in 2005. Yeah. You know, I couldn't imagine my parents going through that. Or, like, even thinking about, like, now she would be what, like... Our age, pretty much. Going on 33 this year. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just so weird to think. And, like, having kids of her own, maybe, if she wanted to. Whatever she wanted to do. Yeah, whatever she wanted to do, she didn't get to do that. And that's why, like... I mean, some people can see true crime as, like, absolutely morbid. And, like, why are you telling these stories, you know? This is But why. people deserve to have their stories told. Or like you said earlier, that you hadn't heard of this case. I think we heard it. We were young. From here and there, like when they were going to court and stuff. I didn't get a chance to actually listen to the story. Mm-hmm. What I like about this podcast is like, we get to tell part of the victim's stories. And obviously we're not, you know, their family or their friends and we don't know everything about them. But like, I think it's important that we get to do that part right. for them. 
Thank you all so much for tuning in to listen to this incredibly sad story about Cassie Jo Stoddard. We hope you all stay tuned. If you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Warped and Wicked Podcast. You can send any case suggestions to our email, warpedandwickedpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed hearing about this case, please share our podcast with your friends and give us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help get new listeners. We appreciate all of your support and can't wait for you to hear more episodes from us soon. Until then, stay spooky and safe.